0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Before we start the show, I want to spend a couple minutes to inform my listeners that September is National Recovery Month, which is a national observance held every September to educate Americans that substance use treatment and mental health services can enable those with mental and substance use disorders to live healthy and rewarding lives. There are four major dimensions that support a life in recovery. first is health and that's the ability to make informed, healthy choices that support physical and emotional well-being. The second is having a home, or a stable and safe place to live. The third is purpose, meaning it's important for these individuals to engage in meaningful daily activities, such as a job or school, volunteering, caring for your family, or being creative. It's important for them to work for independence, income, and resources to participate in society. And fourth, community meant to build relationships and social networks that can provide them with support. Although it won't completely solve all problems, I think that technology, including blockchain and AI, can help a recovering person improve the quality of each of these four dimensions in some way or another. However, as we build these tools, we need to carefully consider the risks that these technologies can bring to people. We must build ethically and sustainably. Let me know what you think in the SoundCloud comments. Our guest today is Tori Adams, founder and CEO of her own consulting firm, Cadwin, and chief innovation officer at Value Technology Foundation. Tori has been a huge advocate and thought leader for blockchain technology for many years now. Based in Washington, D.C., she has made many connections to the D.C. blockchain ecosystem, including Congress, federal agencies, and nonprofits. We talked about her experience as a consultant, a little bit about airport security, learning about blockchain in healthcare, and about technology adoption. We also talked about the complex issues related to substance abuse treatment programs and the lack of trust in most rehab treatment facilities. I found Tori's career very interesting, and I hope you all enjoy this episode. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal Financial or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show.
1: What is blockchain? What is blockchain? blockchain. Blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now.
0: Welcome to the Health on Chain podcast. Today's guest is Victoria Adams, or Tori for short. Tori has done strategy consulting for the public sector during most of her career at places like IBM and Booz Allen Hamilton. She's spoken at many conferences, events, and meetings about blockchain technology with a focus on health tech, gov tech, which means government technology, and fintech. Tori was personally recruited by Joe Lubin, the co-creator of Ethereum, to lead the public sector division at ConsenSys, which I hope we'll talk a little bit about. Yeah, sure. She's currently the Chief Innovation Officer at Value Technology Foundation and CEO of her own consulting firm Cadwin. Tori, I'm so glad to have you on the show.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So I think to kind of get started, would you mind providing some context of your background, your career so far just so the audience understands who you are?
1: Sure. So I've been in the technology business for about 20, 30 years. So uh, I am officially old, um, but, uh, but I've been through a number of technology waves and always worked with some of the big uh, firms and taken time to sort of run my various startups that I've worked through the years. And then about five years ago, five, six years ago, I started to read about this thing, blockchain. Unlike a whole bunch of other people, you become addicted to it, right? You go down the rabbit hole. You know, you take the blue pill and all the rest of it, or the red pill. Whichever pill is the one that gets you sort of totally obsessed with this thing.
0: It's the red pill, for sure. It's
1: the red pill. Okay. So I went back to the blue pill. But I was at Booz Allen. Booz Allen, great firm, 25,000 people but you're not gonna get it to turn on a dime. So I started being that person in the firm that was blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. (laughs) You know, everything is a solution. Uh, Everything is blockchain. And I uh, sort of got some money behind me at the firm then to do some work on innovation and how blockchain could help our clients. And, you know, from that, I started to meet various people in the blockchain world, go to conferences, start to speak, go to meetups, go down the path we all go down with this technology, reading the blogs, started to meet Joe Lubin at a bunch of stuff. And eventually, you know, Joe said, hey, why don't you come and work for me? And I said, well, you know, startups, <laughs> I need to get paid. And he said, oh, no, no, I got money, at which point it was, you know, oh, um, uh, don't make me beg. And we agreed they were terms we could negotiate on. So um, I went over to Joe and he said, why don't you try and set something up? So with... when was
0: this? Just to get a sense of like This timing. is
1: 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, set something up in D.C. with um, to focus on the public sector and see what can be done there. So I went over there and we started with that with uh, Jordan Walpert, who was the one of the inventors of Hyperledger um was also working with the same thing we set something up we ran it for about oh uh three years and uh, at that point joe decided hey i want to pivot away from the public sector so i moved on into uh value tech and that's where i am today
0: that's fantastic and you know you've been in washington dc throughout most of your career is that right
1: that's correct yeah i came over here uh from the uk in uh, the 80s of all times, and then I've sort of been back and forth, but I've done a lot of work with uh, different governments around the world, and in particular the U.S. federal government.
0: Interesting. What's your, like, high-level experience been like with uh, regulators? <laughs>
1: <laughs> As with but with blockchain? Uh, they're getting there.
0: I guess with new technology, right? Because you were probably there when in the Internet was becoming a thing.
1: Well... You know, I mean, a lot of it depends on the administration and whether mm-hmm. there's an established regulatory community there already. So, blockchain is trying to insert itself really into two very highly regulated communities uh, health and financial. And that's going to be a problem because you're coming up against a lot of established interests. You're coming up against a well-developed administrative, uh, uh, set of, set of laws and rules and regulations. So that's tough. That's a tough thing to get into. If you're coming in with a more general purpose application of a technology. So for instance, when the internet came in, people were like, yeah, you know, great, let's do this. Um, you know, when I, when, um, AI is, as AI is coming, people can accept that. The problem with blockchain is it's requiring both a cultural change and a legal regulatory change in an area that is also very heavily regulated. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, you're going against government's um, knee-jerk reaction. You know, you're talking about decentralization, Mm -hmm. about gaining power by giving power, and all of this kind of stuff. And that's very difficult for government to grasp. So, you know, not great.
0: Yeah, and, you know, last time we talked, actually, we were talking about security a little bit, and you mentioned that you were actually planning to go to a conference, I'm presuming it's like a teleconference, but it was on the COVID airport security National Academy meeting. Can you talk a little bit about what happened at that meeting?
1: Sure. Well, that was pretty interesting because we got a lot of folks from around the world that are trying to deal with this. And what you got was... A lot of people with ideas, but very little actually coming to be rolled out and worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw the most advanced applications probably in China, as mm-hmm. always, when we see these things. A lot of times because they don't have to do with the privacy regulations here. That's true. You know, so the control that you can have over people entering an airport in China and how they were exploring the concept of health passports, is much easier to do than you would have getting that concept accepted here. And what was really interesting were things like um, from um, Miami airport that were actually doing real pilots with blockchain, but they were focusing less on the big issues like COVID and more on, you know, things which seem sort of small ball but actually are really difficult to do. Like for instance, getting airport uh, airlines to, to share the information about the gates where their planes are coming in, which I didn't know they keep sort of incredibly secret to themselves. Hmm. So when they're flying across the Atlantic from Miami to Heathrow, um, they the, the airline knows which gate it's coming in at Heathrow or planning to come in, but it doesn't necessarily share that with anybody else until the last minute. And so they will using blockchain to share that information, uh, which obviously is getting around the thing of um, my gate is at B twenty seven, and I've just discovered that my connecting flight is at C one hundred eleven. You know, and I've and got gotta to run. get there. I got to <laughs> run. Um, So they were using blockchain to share it because apparently a lot of the the airlines feel this is competitive information to know how quickly they could turn gates around and move through. So they were sharing that. Small application, but something you can get going. On the COVID thing, nothing really. And the two things that really struck me were related to what's known as the cold chain and then converting um, passenger planes to cargo planes. So the cold chain, very interesting. Uh, the cold chain is essentially temperature controlled air cargo. Uh, very little air cargo, you know, less than, I, th- I think I might be wrong. I think the number is about 20% of, 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 uh, of pharmaceuticals go by air. And a lot of it is because they haven't got this proper documentation and proper controls for maintaining temperature. Um, and, in fact, 50% of pharmaceuticals that move through the cold chain by air cargo um, are contaminated or are non-usable by the time they arrive at their end point. Now, that's going to be a big issue when it comes it's to COVID. And, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a hell of a loss. So you go by sea for most of the time. And that's going to be a big issue when we come to vaccines for COVID because what we're going to have to do is move billions of doses around the world quickly or just around the U.S. You know, if we start producing in a central location in the U.S. and you're trying to uh, inoculate 330 million people, that's going to require a lot of movement. And if you can't go through that cold chain, there's going to be some problems. So using blockchain as a supply chain tool there to track that uh, temperature is maintained, that you're not getting tampering with the product, and you're not getting theft. Because anytime you start moving something through a supply chain that has value, and those initial doses are going to have value, you're going to get theft. And there was a lot of interest in that. But what I found really interesting was the You know, there was interest, but there wasn't somebody saying, I'm doing this, I'm stepping up and doing this. Hmm. Um, And I I find that very interesting where that was going on. The other thing that was interesting too was, uh, especially in the early days of the pandemic, there were a lot of planes when there was nobody flying that were being converted to cargo. So they were putting like ventilators and seats and taking cargo in a place that's not set up to take cargo which then lacked a lot of the um, of the of the reliability that's in tra- typical air cargo things and having to mm-hmm. to then use the airports to move things in and out. Again, anytime you're moving something of value, you're gonna get fraud and all of this. And I know people talk about RFID tags, but I suggest you go online and just type in how to spoof or hack RFID tags and there's a whole bunch of online tools you can download to your phone to be able to get around an RFID tag,
0: That's Again, interesting. I didn't know yeah, about all that.
1: Yeah, I, it's kind of crazy. Again, talking to various people within the supply chain business. I mean, I was talking to a major airline manufacturer about blockchain um, um, and their supply chain. And and I said, well, what about RFID tags?" And they said, we've been scammed by this before. you know said you don't we want real parts and everything you don't get into our supply chain unless we can come and audit you and send inspectors around your factory and do all of this because we do not rely on technology alone just because we have seen every single way you can get around the technology And at that time, I said, well, what about blockchain? And they said, yeah, we're interested in blockchain, not for the traditional supply chain, but when we move to additive manufacturing and we're starting to talk about printing something out for a part, and what we will do then is we'll have a set of approved um, uh, printers, approved vendors almost, that can print it out, and we'll suddenly put out saying we want You know a relatively small order 1500 of this particular bolt for a particular thing and we'll send out the design and then they'll come back and give us a price and we'll pick the one and they'll they'll produce it you know wherever produce it in dubai because they've got a printer in dubai that can do it now they said the thing is we want to be able to track our digital designs
0: Right, I was going to say, why can't someone take that design and make thousands of copies of it for themselves, sell exactly. it on the market? Exactly, so
1: that, that's where they were wanting to somehow put blockchain into that, so they could track the design huh. as it goes forward and where it was. That was their thinking. And I know that's what the Marine Corps in the U.S. have been thinking about. I mean, the commandant of the Corps, the guy that's in charge, he's talked about having a 3D printer at um, every Marine's workstation within 10 years. Wow. And you know if you need something you're going to print it uh, and cut down the logistical thing because marines are often operating at the far end of a supply chain and what the Marine Corps then is very concerned about is how can we stop one spoof designs coming in where somebody says you know it's meant to be this widget you need for uh, for a i don't know for a, for a water purifier, a water purifier. Okay. and and it turns out not to be and the whole thing explodes. <laughs> or equally that somebody takes your fancy dancy uh, secret squirrel listening device and uh, steals the design. So again, I know the folks at SimbaChain have been very active in thinking about this kind of stuff. So, you know, I mean, going back to that conference, there was a lot of talk, a lot of folks pressing forward um, from the China side, but still not that movement, you know, Mm -hmm. still not that movement that we really wanna see.
0: Do you think that COVID has prevented people from moving forward? They're just trying to like figure out with the technology they have, they're trying to figure out how to manage COVID without introducing potentially risky new technologies. I think that's been a, I think a that's theme. a big thing.
1: Yeah. I think that's a big thing. I think when you look at it, you know, an emergency isn't a good time to begin something new. Yeah. Right? You know, it's you're up to your ass and alligators and all of that. <laughs> and especially when you're talking about something that is still an immature technology you know, that, that is still developing and you're trying to do that. I've just got my notes up here that I'm looking for, you know, and, and then in these situations, you got to get a lot of buy in from stakeholders. And we've still got the problem dealing with blockchain that when you go into blockchain, you can't sell somebody so much on the end benefit. You have to also explain them why it gets to the end benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I mean, I've tried to sell this to all kinds of people and I'll, I'll you know, they say, but what is it?
0: Well, what, is, you know, what is your approach with that? So let's say you have a potential new client. Uh, what's your consulting approach when you are working with them?
1: Well, we oh. get three kinds of clients come to our door, right? So we're going to get, and they've always either been told to do it or somebody, or they've read something or they've done something. And they're really fond of three groups first group is somebody that says, blockchain, that's Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's used uh, that's used for drug smuggling and stuff. You know, I used to have this T-shirt that says, blockchain, it's not just for uh, sex trafficking, drugs and guns uh, yeah. anymore. A friend of mine in the FBI says, not just, but still. Yeah. Uh, but um, you've got that person.
0: But all, I mean, you, a- you could argue cash does the same thing. And enables exactly, same that's thing, what so. I always say. But that has to be physically there, so there is like a component of that crypto currency or digital currency that makes it a little easier for those um, those bad actors. But what can you do? Yeah.
1: And I always say, look, if you're a bad actor, the last place you want to do is put records of your transaction on a digital thing that will never change. Right. (laughs) You know. you know, you know, and also you say things like, well, you, let me introduce you to one of the biggest money laundering organizations in the world. It's called the United States Banking System. <laughs> All of these A things.
0: lot of people don't realize that. <laughs>
1: yeah. No. So, I mean, with those guys, you're going to have to start out disabusing them of that and going through the things we're talking about, cashes and banking. is. This is just a way of transferring value. Mm-hmm. You know, be that money, securities data access rights, permissions. It's Content. more than it's yeah. It's more than crypto. We're gonna have to move out of there. And that can be a long time working through that and coming up with lots of examples. The second type of person we come to is the enthusiast. You know? Mm-hmm. And they've read something and they've got true religion and they want to put everything on the block. They want to put dogs on the blockchain. <laughs> you know, they've they've done all of this and they really just want to take their existing processes and put them onto the blockchain. And often there's no benefit, you know, it's, in fact, you've just made it more complicated. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is like talking them down from doing that and saying, can we find that use case that you're going to be able to say to your boss, there really is a business case for this, you know? And then the final one that you rarely see is someone that really gets it, you know, and, and with them, I mean, the difficult thing is the two of you together, You know, when you're talking to them, you can almost convince each other out of any use case mm-hmm. <laughs> that comes in. So what we normally try and do, or what, what I've done is, you know, do, do the ideation session. Let's sit down, let's walk through things. You know, do some homework before I come with three or four use cases you're thinking of. Because most people don't come with, I've got a use case. I've got something I want to pilot. They come with a general feeling mm-hmm. of it that I think this would be good for my business somehow. And it's just sort of sorting through that. And I think that's a big problem because um, people, you know, are thinking from the technology to the problem rather than I got a problem. How can I solve it? Uh, and, you know, and there's, you got to get a bit of both. But, that there is that sort of the technology-focused solution.
0: Got you. Um, let's take a bit of a step back. I'm curious about your role at Value Technology Foundation. Can you briefly describe what that is and sure. what you do as chief innovation officer there?
1: Sure. So Value Tech was set up by uh, Jason Bradt, who uh, had been a financial regulator, uh, a bank regulator, and had uh, worked at Consensus too. He had done a lot of the financial work, and he'd been a a lobbyist for a while and worked a lot on the Hill, and he writes for Forbes and has been on CNN a few times. And he set up this uh, foundation, uh, 501c3, Mm -hmm. to be able to sort of bring that Washington community together. To start to talk about things, not just as a sort of meetup, but where we could actually bring in some of the big firms, some of the big technology makers in D.C., and then some of the congressional staff and some of the folks from government and begin to talk about what are some of the interests we are we have in common, what are some of the common problems we're seeing, and how we can go forward both in research. So we managed, for instance, to get uh, a piece put into the current um, um, appropriations bill. Jason worked hard to do this such that um, to fund a uh, $20 million um, a blockchain center for defense research and a 20 million one uh, uh, one for civilian research. Hmm. And now that goes through that's going to be great it's got to go through the senate stuff and all of this but our goal is to achieve real things and that came up talking to our membership talking to other folks saying you know, what do you guys think we need to move this forward? Now, what I specifically do there is try and work with a lot of developers and a lot of small firms that are emerging and start to say, what are some of the innovations that are coming up? What are some of the blocks that you're seeing? How can we come up with new things? You know, what, is, what are you seeing that is stopping you moving ahead? You know, so, for instance, with a lot of this COVID stuff and a lot of the uh, – uh, that's attracted a lot of my attention towards supply chain and talking to a great many people that are trying to put supply chain applications together, one of the things that we began to sort of see was most supply chain applications in blockchain we've seen to date have been very much focused on B2B, business to business, right? So you can either see the situation of uh, Walmart where it's acting as a monopsonist as a single buyer who's trying to control and discipline its supply chain using Hyperledger. You can also see uh, uh, consortium blockchains emerging where you have multiple parties and they trust one another a bit and they're trying to move things around. Now, none of these have really taken off. You can say Walmart maybe has taken off, you can point to it, but they haven't really taken off. And I, I think that we fundamentally started to see that And what a lot of entrepreneurs in this space were saying is that this was a nice sort of blockchain was a nice sort of middleware add-on to these firms helping them document and record especially when you needed a a, a um a system of record to say a went to b went to c went to d but there was no other commercial advantage to it um so we started to talk about Where were those industries that really needed it? And this is why we eventually ended up talking to Congress about, hey, could you uh, think about a defense application? Because there's so much in defense where you really need trackability and traceability within your supply chain. But the other thing we started to see was, you know, folks would say, I went to Company X, which talks about its supply chain being ethical and sustainable. And we thought that would be a great sell for us um, you know they make uh, they make pants and they get those pants from um, the fibers are ethically sourced and they are put together in factories that represent glow that uh, follow global um, uh, uh, human rights and labor rights and all the rest of it they said we didn't we weren't finding that was an event they weren't buying and I said well that's interesting why and as we started to talk to them the one thing that we found very much was because you couldn't say to your consumers in such a business that our um, products are ethically and sustainably um, sourced because we are using blockchain, right? Yeah,
0: it's a tough thing to educate. It's a tough, tough thing
1: because the on. public doesn't get it yet. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they don't understand that statement. So you might as well say because we are using unicorns. <laughs> You know, they don't, there's nothing, the, again, we come into this thing of, well, I have to explain to you that it's this decentralized system that uses cryptography and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there's this thing called a hash, you know, you know and all of that immutable
0: stuff. ledgers, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes.
1: And the public are like, yeah, you just lost me at this technology. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, a lot of what we're working on now is like communication. How can you communicate that to the public? What does it take? You know, does it take a celebrity to stand up and say, I use blockchain, it's the best thing there is? Or, you know, is there a way of communicating this in such a way as you can really break through to that B2C, business to consumer thing, where blockchain becomes a value add to your product rather than some internal management uh, device?
0: Yeah, well, I think actually there is one way that might help these consumers engage more. Let's say you are sourcing eggs, right? And you want to make sure that the eggs are being sourced appropriately from chickens that have been treated well. Um, It would be great if there was a barcode to scan on your egg carton, and then you can see all the different locations it was It was at during that process. But then you can argue, why can't a database do that versus, you know, like FedEx does that now. I know where my package has been in the last few days. I think what's key here is we want to make sure that each um, location point or access point of that, um, of the supply chain has its own unique features to it or something. You know, you're able to like prove that each stakeholder works independently, actually but yeah. they're still able to communicate over the same channels in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and there, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this, that there are sort of three levels uh, of the blockchain supply chain when we're coming here. Level one is the thing we're seeing a lot, which is essentially just developing a system of record, mm-hmm. either for regulatory compliance or for your your own internal management. And I think there's a great deal of possibility there, but it's it's quite limited. Uh, Level two is when you're starting to bring the consumer in, where as you're saying, um, look, you can track where these eggs have been. And maybe, you know, if you download our app and you you hit the the barcode, the blockchain, you know, it'll come up with something saying this this thing can't be tampered with can show you a picture, you know, a picture yeah. of the eggs or a picture of the chicken. Of the or chicken. something like right. that, like this. And you can see it, happy chicken going around the field rather than in a cage. Now I think there's a lot lot you can do there. And I think people just have to sort of sit down and think about that. And it's going to be the proof to the consumer. Cause the con- and people respond to visuals. People respond to, you know, video. You can do this now. Um, the third level, I think, is when you get into things where the consumer can actually interface with the supply chain. You know, I can tip the guy the, mm. to pick my coffee. You know, there is some crypto reward system where I can say, hey, you did a great job, click, or, you know, I'm wearing these pants, I really love them. And I want to say that the workers in plant 42 in in Juarez, you know, just kicked it out of the park. Because one of the things that we're seeing now, I mean, uh, you know, there's some great books on this, but the whole idea that, you know, we are moving to an economy where, we want to have that connection. We want to have that connection with the producer. We want to have know that something's sustainable. We want to know that something is, uh, you know, uh, is ethically produced, and pe- that matters to consumers, especially younger consumers. And also, you know, you get into this thing of how do you show status nowadays? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're Donald Trump, right, the the, 80, the archetypal 80s is guy. You know, you have a plane and you have a, a gold toilet. You have lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. and uh, now, you know, how would you so show status? Well, I have this serene, beautiful apartment with uh, sustainable oak floors and everything, and I have minimalist design. You, today, if you show status, you're showing that this particular coffee cup, the coffee came from one hill, which has the best coffee in the world. Now, when you're selling that to somebody, being able to have them to interact with that, to know it, is a real advantage commercially. And I think when folks take that, that's when they're really going to start to see the benefits of that.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I feel like once one company or one organization does it well, all the other ones are going to have to copy. It'll be a pretty quick turnaround time. I do want to just share this with my audience that on episode 29, I interviewed Kevin Cutler uh, and we talked about transparent food supply. He um, runs Biteable Incorporated. It's It's Biteable, (laughs) Biteable. So I just wanted. to... People to know about that. Um, my next question actually is more related to COVID. I think that's obviously yeah. top of mind. And I saw a really amazing, awesome infographic you published, like I think in March or February, really early on, uh, about how blockchain can be used to improve or to make you know the COVID yeah. crisis uh, you know a little bit better with data management and stuff. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? John, yeah.
1: So. You know, we approached that at the time by saying, "Look, blockchain is ideally suited for this, right? Uh, we're dealing with a lot of highly sensitive, highly regulated regulated information, health information, HIPAA in the U.S., other regulations around the world. We're dealing with uh, the need for transparency and tract and traceability in all kinds of things. So let's start thinking about how we can do this." And I worked with ACIAC, uh, which I don't think i can uh, remember what it stands for but look it up um but that is a government industry partnership that is sort of working together to do this and um you know at the time i I said look there are these use cases so we said there's a straightforward use case that's there for track and trace when it comes to uh, medical equipment when it comes to um Um, when it comes to uh, vaccines, therapeutics, all of that is there. We're going to want to know that this is the real thing. As I said, any time that you get into something of value, there will be fraud, there will be theft. So we need to get that down. Secondly, there is a huge potential when we come to sharing information. Uh, We're seeing the emergence of what they're calling um, virus uh, vaccine nationalism where people, different countries are saying, I want my vaccine to go there. I want to share information. So there is a way in which we can share information using blockchain and share research information and share findings without giving away the family jewels. Mm-hmm. And we thought this was a very easy one. And I know a lot of people in Consensus Health have been working very hard. People like Sean Mannion and Heather Flannery have been working very hard to get this uh this kind of thing going. And I think I think they might have some pilots that are coming out from stealth on that.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, so I have interviewed both of them, so check it out yeah. for my audience. But yeah, yep. I totally agree. I think those are really interesting applications. But another one that I found also interesting, which we're probably going to talk about now, is the social distancing token idea. That's I right. So, an idea, that's, yeah. Yeah, ahead.
1: so the idea there was to say, look, you know, um, if you've got to download an app on your phone, And if you can get enough people to do this, and the setting idea was in an airport, for instance, you Mm -hmm. could get that, you know, then you can start to say, I will give you a token if you maintain social distancing. If you come within six foot or there are more than six people in the room who have this app on their phone, you know, I'm going to either deduct coins from you. Or I'm going to, you know, give you coins if you avoid that. So somebody said to me, aren't you rewarding loneliness? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I said, you know, no, but think about it. Uh, the, uh, my colleague, my former colleague, uh, uh, John Walpert, always used to say blockchain is fundamentally a, a, a social engineering tool. Mm-hmm. It allows you to create incentives and incentive systems where there were before. So what we can start to do is either say something like, if you have maintained all social distancing rules by the end of the month, you will receive a war- an award of 10 coins. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time you violate one, you will lose, you know, point one of a coin or whatever it is. And we can start counting back from that point as you don't, if, if you don't maintain that social distance. If you are too close to somebody or close to another phone or whatever, we can start to establish that. If you are going to a place that we know is a hotspot. And you can start to do that by giving these incentives to people. Now, one of the things that we would have to do with this is capitalize it to begin with, you know, because the problem with a lot of coins is that you use for incentives. You can't then get any cash out of it at the beginning. And and I've tried to work things like rehab coins and recovery coins, and it's just been very difficult to get that initial capitalization coming through. Now we, we you know now because the world is full of synchronicities, uh, one of the guys that was talking at um, that uh, conference airport conference I was at uh, he was saying they were trying to get something very similar off the ground in China um, and you know he had a particular kind idea associated with this I think that kind of thing is there again okay? it's you know it's somebody taking it pushing it and running it.
0: So in China I think that would it would be much easier to implement that sort of yeah. social distancing token or you know in America I don't see it happening anytime soon I just don't soon, see it happen to be honest no. I think it's very interesting like the experiment yeah. sounds cool I want to like watch it happen in like a small city just to see what, yeah, yeah. what people do but you know it's not going to happen in the next few yeah. years that I can imagine and but you've got to
1: make the reward big enough and and but, what you know
0: yeah, and you know, you talked about how it's difficult to capitalize or provide. When you say that, just to explain what I think you're saying is, get cash money U S. dollars, yeah. buy a bunch of tokens, so each token has some value, and then you can share that. What I'm thinking blockchain really is is not that we could just you know supply a bunch of tokens using dollars, but actually the tokens themselves over time gain value. So yeah. we want to create this sort of network marketplace. I know it sounds. You know, it might sound easy just talking about it, but this is really difficult to do. Bitcoin has been trying to do it for ten years, yeah, and it's the closest thing we've got to success.
1: Well, one of the things we were trying to talk about at Consensus, and Consensus has gone very hard into municipal bonds since mm. uh, I left, and I was that was what I was working on uh, there for a while, and my vision of this was. The example I always gave was, can we think of an urban service that the city or whatever controls that they can give away at a price difference? So, for instance, here's an example, I live, uh, I'm a city manager, and I want to put in uh, a number of electric charge stations for electric vehicles. Okay. And I want to do this as a public benefit. You know, you're going to pay for them, but I'm going to do this because some reason. Now um, – I've tried, I can't really get a bond issue through on this. The reason is an electric charge ta- station in a public street costs about $60,000 to put in. Hmm. Problem is uh, a bond for $60,000 costs as much as a bond for $60 million. Okay. So, you know, it's my bond fee. So it makes no sense. And it doesn't even make sense for half a million dollars. You know, you need to get into multiple millions before bond, municipal bonds started to make sense. Furthermore, I got a bunch of people that still drive uh, internal combustion engine cars that say, What's a big I don't you know, why am I paying for these charging stations? So what do I do? Well, I say, I'm gonna release this initial community offering, my ICO, and I'm gonna niche a coin, and you're gonna buy this coin, and this coin is gonna fund these electric charging stations. Now, I'm gonna do a couple of different things. One, the people that buy the coins on the initial time around that's gonna fund these, you're gonna get uh, 10 charges for the price of one. So there's an incentive for you to do this Mm -hmm. rather than say, I'll just use them when I got them. And secondly, I'm gonna get around the opposition Because I'm going to give everybody who's a voter in the city, everybody that's uh, a resident over 18 and all this, I'm going to give you two coins. I'm just going to give you two. So everybody's going to get two. But if you want to buy a bunch more, you can buy them. And I'm going to set it to do this. Now, why do I do that? Well, one, I'm trying to buy off opposition uh, to my thing. But the other thing is I'm trying to create a secondary market for those coins Mm -hmm. because those coins now have value. The initial public offering coins are, say, each coin is worth 100 charges. I'll have to do the economics and all of this. Um, And afterwards, each coin is going to be 10 charges or something that I purchase. Well, I've now created a bunch of people with an asset of of the charges I've given who can now start to trade and sell them on an exchange. I've capitalized my market by saying, these coins are as a utility coin, are equivalent to being able to charge uh, my electric vehicle. And who's gonna buy them? The people that have electric vehicles. And they, why are they gonna buy them? Because there's an advantage to it. So you can start to manipulate the crypto economics within this uh, space to create incentives and to capitalize markets. Now, I take my money I've got from my initial coin offering, uh, my initial community offering, where I've, you know, say I'm going to build 10 of these places. Presumably, people with electric cars will buy them as it's a good deal. Mm -hmm. And they will also now be onto the thing where they can go and buy the other ones off all the residents who have these coins. Um, And I've got a market going from that and then over time I can introduce new more coins in at the lower rate of this. I can also maybe at that point go to manufacturers of electric vehicles and say, Hey, you know, I'm doing this, you wanna buy some? you know because i'm creating your thing so i think it's a matter of thinking of the markets that you're involved in and how you can capitalize them and the great advantage with things like local governments and this as a funding mechanism is that they can create value out of nothing you know
0: will that always be the case will we always have the the government's ability to basically print money
1: uh, I well, we'll always have the government's ability to generate value, right? Because government okay. owns, will has, controls access to certain services, okay. right? So, uh, if you go to uh, a library, such things do exist, and you try <laughs> and borrow a book, they will ask if you live in that area. True. You yeah. know, and they will. You will show your driver's license, and if you do, so they control access. So you can always trade access. If I go to a school. Uh, it's do you live in this uh, this area? So governments or anything that's geographically based is always going to have that access control function mm-hmm. and you can't think of a system where you throw it open to everybody because it becomes very difficult to start to do things like budgeting, controlling and all of this. We, we live in a geographically bounded world. There are some goods that are non- uh non-geographically linked that are digital you can sell but for our basic services and government has that thing and as long as we have geographically linked governments we're going to have that but if you think about all of the things you could do this for licenses you know everything from hunting to camping to uh you know fishing you could do this for uh anything to do with small projects you know you want to buy a fire truck fire truck i think is about four hundred thousand dollars you know, um you could you can so see how you can do this. I mean one app that uh, you know I've been working on is with the Kedwin is this idea of of creating a municipal bond app where you what you would do there is you would say, um, you know I would be able to look and see what are the various municipal projects within different communities and then be able to buy tokens within those communities and then, Ultimately, I'd be able to see the, the uh, one, I know that the community, I could see the record of the community procuring all the things, you know, when they buy the rocks, when they buy the bricks, I can see that. And I would ultimately want to put a feed up where I could see the building being constructed or the skate park being constructed, or whatever it is, and then being able to sell those things, uh, sell those not just to individuals who live in that town, but as diaspora bonds. Uh, So, for instance, if I come from a little town in the Midwest, um, and I went to Chicago, and I'm doing great, I might think, hey, I want to invest in my old town you know, and being able to create that market where small communities can get access to capital, where they are locked out of the bond market, because most of those bonds are still going to New York, Chicago, California, Texas. You know, Mm they go into the big bond owners, and also they're owned by old people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, municipal bonds, it's not a sexy field to be in. But if you think about it where... I can, again, p- appeal to consumers that s- want to have some connection where they live and want to do good things. And so I'm saying to your town, uh, hey, you want to put in some speed bumps. You want to put in new things in the park. Well, launch a coin, you know, mm-hmm. work with the city. The city has to approve it. People have to sign off. Launch a coin, work through your community, get people to buy it. We'll see it. You'll know the money isn't going to be shifted off because local government has been known to be corrupt. Well,
0: it's kind of like uh, there was a whole micro-loans industry that grew out of the Internet as well. So this is sort of like micro-bonds and also adds a layer of transparency through blockchain. And trust. And I'm going to
1: fractionate those bonds. So, you know, right now if you want to buy a bond, you have to have like 5000 bucks, you know, to buy that. Now I'm fractionating it. I could, you could sell it around the world. If I come from, you know, a village in Kenya, I could go back or do something in Ghana. I know the money is being spent. I'm going to get around that whole thing of I don't know where it is, and we're working on that. But uh, you know how yeah. now is not a good time to look for capital. <laughs>
0: Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Social media has given humans so many amazing ways to connect with each other on a global scale. There's a Facebook community for everyone. Families can stay up to date virtually. YouTube videos can teach you almost anything you need to know. On the flip side, however, social media has created a more toxic polarization of ideas that are limited to the organizations or institutions with the most marketing dollars. I will admit, I do look at my Twitter and LinkedIn feeds multiple times a day, unconsciously searching for the next dopamine hit from the likes and the comments. The reason I am talking to you about this in this episode's news corner is because, one, I recently watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, and two, I recently saw a report that a 15-year-old girl from Oklahoma attempted the Benadryl TikTok challenge and died. The Social Dilemma documentary featured many prominent tech entrepreneurs who explained how dangerous social media is becoming because of the current financial incentives of the large technology companies. I suggest you check it out when you get a chance. And now to address the Benadryl challenge issue. I'm frankly afraid of what people will do based on something they were told online. There have been countless examples of this, including drinking bleach to prevent coronavirus, the choking challenge, and the notorious Tide Pod Challenge. What I'm most afraid of is the introduction of deepfake videos on social media that may more easily persuade young people to do really dangerous things to themselves. We need to change the financial incentives so that idiotic challenges don't become so popular just because they grab the most human attention. Recommendation engines shouldn't be trained to suck as much attention and time out of your day staring at a 4-inch screen all day long. So to quickly recap, watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix, and please, please do not swallow 14 Benadryl pills to hallucinate. It's not cool, and it doesn't make you cool. There are much safer ways to experience a hallucinogenic state, but we can save that conversation for another podcast. Let me know if you found this interesting. And now back to the show with Tori Adams, CEO of Cadwin. What is your opinion on the decision to send COVID-19 data to the Department of Health and Human Services instead of the CDC? And I think now we're going back to the CDC, right? Yeah. Presumably? yeah. So what, what what is the reasoning behind that? Do you know?
1: I do not know, apart from everything in D.C. has been chaos for four years. Okay. Um, you know, did, I, I mean, I've lived through a lot of administrations. And normally when a Republican administration comes in, they've got a thing. You know, and that thing is always something to do, making government like business. Well,
0: it's the wall for this administration, right? That's the thing.
1: And they have a big initiative and they do everything. But this this administration has no thing, it's just all over the place.
0: Well, you got the wall. I feel like that's the thing. That's that's what I
1: think. Yeah. But they've got no, like, theory of government. Um,. So it's going back and forth. I mean, you know, when we were talking with uh, Akayak, you know, one of the messages, I said, this isn't a time for experimentation. If we've got any blockchain thing on the shelf, let's get it out. FDA has been doing something using blockchain to track emergency uh, correspondence between hospitals. And that was on the shelf three or four years ago. You know, and that... I mean, they're ramping it up. But Which project
0: was that? Do you know the name of the project? Well,
1: I don't know the name of the project now. But what the idea was, within a a public health emergency, there's a great deal of data that's exchanged. And uh, there's a great deal of communications. And you want to be able to see who's getting the data when. And you also want to be able to say who got communications about what was going on at an appropriate time. Initially, it was focused on communications because they were thinking they want to do the after action audit and be able to understand who, how, how information flowed through the system. Now, that's out there. That is running. That is running at different hospitals. And that's pretty impressive. But the flows of data between the CDC and HHS, I mean, I'll just say that um, the CIO at HHS just left unexpectedly yeah i saw and, that
0: i um, yeah. mentioned that in one of my recent news corners uh actually and i, I would like to get jose arieta on the show as soon as possible yeah. to, to talk about that but he hasn't gotten back to me yet yeah <laughs> how can blockchain alleviate some problems we face in the battle against the opioid crisis it's a bigger I,
1: issue for me you know yeah. my daughter is a recovering opioid act, uh addict and I've been thinking and working about this for a long time. Uh, The initial thing that I started to work with on this was track and trace, especially prescription opioids. And there's a lot of problems here that you have to deal with. Uh, The biggest one is um, when I have uh, get prescribed an opioid um, for say a shoulder injury or something, uh, the regulatory systems and the reporting systems are actually not um, by, uh, not national, they're by state. Hmm. And they're not updated very often. So I could be on the border of Ohio and Kentucky, and I could get a prescription which I go and fill paper prescription in Ohio, and then I could just cross the river uh, from Cincinnati over into Kentucky and fill it again.
0: Yeah, that, you that is a problem.
1: Uh, and so I want to create, you know, you need to create the system where I can ensure the security of your health information, and that I can share that health information between pharmacies, between doctors, between different state regulatory officials, and protect your privacy rights under HIPAA. So blockchain is potentially a huge solution to that. Now, uh, a number of companies have have tried that, but they haven't really pushed sufficiently into that. And again, I think it's... um, you know, it's lack of political will, and also at that point, you got to get into the politics of it. You know, you got to deal with the people in charge and explain what the issue is there. Uh, the second thing that um, we spent a lot of time looking at was just track and trace the whole of the uh, the system throughout um, throughout the drug. Now, there's a, a a congressional mandate to create a track and trace system and to create an electronic track and trace system. And it's just been ignored, essentially. But it's to been be wor- able Sorry. ignored, ignored. So to be able to say that I am going to track from the manufacturer to the pharmacist, and even to the patient, and even with a smart um, bottle to to taking it, when where that um, opioid is within the system, because we know the majority of people who enter the uh, addiction system are coming into it from using over-the-counter medication sorry are using prescribed medication so for instance um you know I, i think of this as a stock and a flow problem there's a flow of people coming in who are becoming addicted and there's a stock of people who are already addicted and we've got to deal with those two things so we've got to stop prescriptions getting in and i think we need to work on that electronic system that tracks and traces prevents diversion of um, opioids from legitimate uses. Um, and that's a perfect blockchain one, going from A to B to C to D to E, going all the way along there. Now, we've even said, we at Consensus at the time suggested, hey, even more so, what you can start to do is to say, if you find somebody in your supply chain who's violating the rules, then you should get a bonus. Put a crypto bond in there. And, you know, buy it at the beginning. Everybody buys a $1,000 bond or a $10,000 bond. And if they find an area, they get everything, all those bonds from their, pre- their previous parts of the supply chain. Now, that's unfair. On the other hand, it'll teach people <laughs> to find reliable partners. Seriously. Building incentive systems into that. And furthermore, yeah, I was talking to some guys and they had come out with a smart bottle. So you could only take say one of these pills a day, and every time you uh, click the bottle to open it and that it sent a signal mm. um, to and register that a, on a ledger to say that Now it's a big industry, and the, the smart bottles apparently are a big deal, so working with them but uh, to do that. but I think the whole thing of tracking those initial doses and also going right back in the supply chain it it's going to take frankly, a change of administration for the administration to say, hey, you have to do this. You know, you have to come down and show that you've developed this system. Right now, they're just ignoring it. Um,
0: Yeah, and I mean, in in addition to, like, tracking the supply side of things, I think, you know, what you're talking about with um, managing manufacturing through to the consumer is mainly on the supply side. I'm also actually very interested in the social aspect of addiction. I think that's very important. I think we still... Obviously, we don't understand the human brain all that well. It's still yeah. something that we are trying to figure out. There are studies saying sugar is as addictive as, as heroin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, we still don't really understand all of it. I think there is a component of connecting with other people and being having yeah. a social yeah. system to support you that can help you recover. Well, this
1: was the other thing we were starting mm-hmm. to, to look at. So when you you go to rehab now, at the end of your 30 year well your 30 days you're basically kicked back out and they say try hard and do these things mm-hmm. what we were saying again is um, you know if you could use Medicaid or insurance things to say no you're going to have to maintain a commitment to that person leading with opioid uh, uh, addiction disorder you're going to have to say you know we- we'll give you 75 percent of your fee Hmm. or we'll give you 75. There's a total amount you can learn. Here's your normal costs. There's 25% of that normal cost we're going to leave on the table. And that is going to be given to you if you can prove that this person is still sober after 30 days, after 60 days, after 90 days. And you can start to include other people in that too, community organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, there is an incentive family. There's an incentive system for you guys, a money cash on the table by some form of crypto that will be capitalized by an insurance policy because the worst thing you can have from insurance thing is from an insurance company is multiple rehabs, mm. right? We want to turn this from a treatment industry into an industry focused on assuring long-term sobriety. And the way to do that is economic incentives because they've got a good business now. Someone comes in. They they fall off the wagon. They can come back in. You know, Mm. my daughter went to the same uh, rehab place twice. Um, You know, thirty grand, uh, two times. Now, first time covered by insurance. Second time uh, covered by my four hundred (laughs) one k. Wow. You know, so um,
0: hope she's doing well now.
1: She's doing. She's doing okay. That's great. But but um, she had, she's been through four or five rehabs. It's a good business to be in rehab. Sounds you know, you're like working it. on people's failure. Mm. What we want to do is be able to say, you know, we're going to use blockchain and we're going to use blockchain so we can track certain metrics that you want to make. And we're going to have no tampering because the rehab business is full of fraud. It's huge fraud. Have you and seen
0: the the Netflix documentary or show called the pharmacist where one yep. pharmacist tracks
1: the, yeah, yeah. I've said, you know, I could, t- I mean, for instance, when my daughter was in active addiction and when she was sober for a period, she would get texts from patient brokers, uh, people that were in the business of sending, um, uh, addicts to any kind of rehab. And it would say something like, uh, uh, $100 for any addict you can send me who has insurance or access to Medicaid. Yeah. And you get that That's and then shame. put them in, back out in the street, maybe send them to a phony baloney uh, uh, rehab. I mean, rehabs are so badly regulated that I'm betting you and I could go to some state somewhere, start one, mm-hmm. and all we do is provide beds. And you collect
0: know, the money from Medic like yeah. uh, Medicaid and any other organization. Yeah,
1: and insurance, you know. Insurance. So so if you could do something where you could say, look, I want to collect metrics, and these metrics have to be done by a community system, by a doctor, by some independent party, and validate the person has cleared a drug test. I'm gonna give you some more money because I want to build into that system for that rehab place, for the good ones to start to say. Um, I'm going to work it. Also, and if I do that, I'm going to start to build up a record of what works. Because right now, we don't have that data. You know, uh, I mean, when you go online to say, I want to see a rehab place, uh, you're going to see pictures of the great green and the mountains and the equine therapy that they do and all that stuff. They're selling the family. They're not selling the addict. They're selling the wife, uh, the husband, the partner mother the father you know anybody like this they're selling that You say, oh yeah i can see you know my joey there and all oh this is great now they're not saying this is using evidence-based medicine and it this has a 70 percent thing but we'll need you to do x y and z mm-hmm. to come in because no one knows that so you know something like equine therapy i always uh, you know make fun of this uh, you know i'm sure like horses are great and I'm sure being around them is fantastic, but there's no proven evidence to say that that do you, helps you, um, g- you know, get off your addiction. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I was talking on a panel with the the head of research for uh, addiction studies at the National Institutes of Mental Health, and she said, yeah, stupid things like equine therapy. I said, I, I mean, you know, I never say that in case there's any horse people in the audience, <laughs> but <laughs> But, you know, if we could get that tracking thing and if we could incentivize using crypto economic systems for, for people to stick with tracking it, we'd also build up that data. And the and the rehabs that didn't do that, we'd start to say, hmm, there's probably something wrong with you if you're <laughs> leaving a chunk of money on the table.
0: Interesting. It's a good you point. You
1: know, so we've sort of worked... That idea, and, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of rehabs about this, and they said, you yeah, know, money's so tight and all of this. And, and again, it's going to take someone really pushing this. I mean, I was going around speaking this truth to power everywhere, and it just wasn't getting anywhere.
0: Yeah, it's. I feel like one issue that we've just been uh, just closing our eyes to in the last few decades, it seems like, I'm really unfortunate. I think it's just going to continue to get worse until, like you said, major change happens. Yeah. What are the biggest misconceptions of blockchain when you speak with various healthcare executives?
1: The biggest one I think that you, you come through is still the, the association with crypto and the association with sort of the Wild West that people have with crypto. Still disabusing people of that is a major thing. I would say the second thing is people who've got a degree of sophistication about this have started to understand the difference between public and private chains. Mm-hmm. And they've said, wait a minute, does this mean I have to open everything up and you know how can I how can I do that? And that doesn't sound right for HIPAA. So getting over this idea that of pseudo anonymity, mm-hmm. and, and also as we said at the beginning, you give power, you gain power. You know, you give security, you gain security. Uh, and getting that idea into people's heads.
0: Okay, interesting. What are some of like the more technical and social adoption challenges for block ta- blockchain technology? Sure,
1: uh, you know, I mean technical. I mean the 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 enterprise and the um, consortium chains are like going ahead; everything's sorted out there. When it comes to working on the public chain and to be able to do this, we've still got to think about scale. You know, mm-hmm. we're nowhere near the scale that we need to be, and also the delay that we could get, and the cost of running that chain. We still got to figure those things out, And, right. and they haven't been figured out. Um,
0: running, yeah, you know, running some sort of, you know, any of the major blockchain infrastructures—they're going to cost. There's fees to every transaction, so that's yeah. going to cost money for the operator.
1: Yeah, um, and how we can deal with that and that problem you know, or if we can just get people to start thinking about this. I mean, you know, the internet could have been designed like this, you know, to like pay for emails or something, but we we didn't do that. So uh, uh, that's to do it. Now, I think socially, it's still this thing of, I have to explain the technology. I can't explain the end benefit to you. And the biggest problem there is it still remains an unproven question of how much do we really care for our privacy? Um, Mm. and there's this question that, uh, our stated I mean, I'm an economist by training. So our stated preference is we care for it a whole hell of a lot. Uh, our, 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 um, actual proven preference, you know, (laughs) what we actually do is we, we don't give a shit, you know, we would give up everything to play Candy Crush. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you do that? Um, how do you build into the privacy? Uh, I was talking to somebody; they they were trying to work something where every time you made a transaction, you saw the potential value of that to a data broker, and you That's were showing how much you were giving. I said, "Can you do that?" And they said, "Well, we think we have an algorithm that can, and all of this." And I was like, yeah, "I'd like to see that algorithm." <laughs> but you know, this idea of getting people to understand it has value to them.
0: Yeah. And especially in the healthcare industry and in your own health data. I mean, right now, yeah. you can say the amount of data we collect on our health is primitive almost compared mm-hmm. to what it will be in 10 years, I presume. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the recent demo demonstration from Neuralink with Elon yeah. Musk. You know, we're about to connect machines to our brain. So there's a lot yeah. of information and data, very valuable data that's going to be generated in the future. So what really is the value of our personal health data?
1: Well, that, you know, that's the question. I mean, is the value from an economic point of view, is the value to me or is the value by somebody being able to take it and aggregate it and find something? Uh, I've often felt that what it is, is I'm prepared to let the National, Institutes of ca- the National Cancer Institute take as much of my data as it wants. Uh, when it comes to big pharma, meh, <laughs> I'm, less, I'm less to do that. Blockchain would allow me to choose at least who it could go to you know, and how it can be used. Uh, I will also say that the other thing is there are institutional problems here. This is a peculiarly American problem. When you talk to people in Europe, when you talk to people in Britain, when you talk to me in Canada, they say, what do you mean all this stuff about sharing health data? You know, the National Health has my record and it does this. And, you know, it's because we have this strange decentralized system with a lot of extraneous parties that are in the system. And that makes the difficulty of getting them all to talk to one another as we're going through. And so, I th- you know, I think that's a huge problem that we're going to have to do. And I think it's going to be education and, and things like showing the value of data. If you have this, you can do this. I mean, a, a former colleague, she, you, she was pushing us thing saying, this generation is lost. <laughs> we've lost, you know, we've all given up our data. We, you know, we've got these BASAC. We can only focus on children.
0: It feels that way. We need yeah.
1: to bring children up to understand the value of data. This is the only way we can do this. Um, one of the most uh, advanced thinkers on this is in government is uh, Sharon Liu over in the Department of Education in their program for innovative technologies. And she is really pushing a self sovereign identity as a way to handle educational records. Interesting. And starting to get thinking on things like educational records, because we all agree you should be able to. I mean, you know, any time you've ever tried to get a transcript uh, mm-hmm. from a university, it can be a giant pain in the ass. Oh yeah. You know, to show that if you're moving schools or something, um, and a lot of that is ele- is, um, is is regulation that makes that de- that data so hard to to share and she's been working to try and encourage uh different school systems to do this i mean i went to a um a session that she was running at the department of education it was a guy from um the uh the education authority that was uh uh, was the authority over the parkland shooting and he said you know he, he was a senior administrator there he said the day that happened uh he said um I, you know i got home and i got an email from somebody from somebody in my office saying some incredible number several several hundred people had gone on to the special education database that night to see what the net to see if they could find the names of the people now he said it started to occur to them then just how many people were in their school system had access to the special education database, and this was because somebody—the news item came out that the shooter was a special ed student, and then from that too, you know, that you didn't actually have a record of who you were when you logged on, or they couldn't easily access that. And he said, I don't know if that was just pure curiosity, or if that was some scuzzy uh, media outlet paying somebody who had a teacher who had access to it. So mm-hmm. he was saying, we are moving to self-sovereign identity. We're just, we're just gonna do it. And Sharon Lew at uh, the Department of Education is very interested that if you're moving from um, uh, uh, Dallas to, um, to San Francisco, when you wanna be able to show, especially agile adult education quals, you had this training in this, that you can easily show it and have it mobile and have control over that information. And, uh, you know, all I can say is there were about 30, 40 education um, systems there, universities, and um, different uh, education records companies, and they were all very interested in it. So I think what it might be is it starts somewhere like there, where the stakes are lower, right. frankly, where there's an obvious business case I want to get my data, mm-hmm. um, and, and you don't have the high stakes of health data.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there is a lot of hesitation to using, you know, uh, decentralized identity for patients right now, but they are using it for providers. So that is kind yes. of happening. That's being—it's pretty successful so far. There are many companies yeah. doing that yeah. now or trying to do it. Uh, I've interviewed a few of them too. Great. Um, in the decentralized ledger technology industry, what do you believe in that most people would disagree with? <laughs>
1: what do I believe in The most people would disagree with? Probably th- this whole thing about you've got to get the business case over to the customer, hmm. that the consumer and the customer is what it is, that most of the applications and most of the people I work with are working B2B or they're working crypto. And my point is you've got to get mass adoption for this and that's people are going to have to understand the value prop. And right now, most people don't have to understand the value prop, and even people in the business cannot articulate the value prop.
0: It's a moving target, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Do you think that Bitcoin's success is essential for the industry to...
1: Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I think Bitcoin is, if anything, a failure. If Bitcoin was to set out to become a medium of exchange, it's failed. Okay. It's an asset. It is not, you know... You, You'd be stupid to buy a pizza with Bitcoin, right? Um, At least one on person
0: did, and we all know yeah. that. <laughs> but,
1: but now, if I gave you 10 Bitcoin, would you buy a car with them? You know, or whatever? No, you'd hold on to them.
0: Right, yeah. You
1: know? So, I th- I think it's failed.
0: Fair enough. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it to be implanted?
1: Probably my arm, but I wouldn't do it. And the reason I wouldn't do it is um, because most technology sucks. Okay. I guess, <laughs> like Apple, right now my my Apple with, uh, phone, which my partner uh, calls uh, my Jesus phone, or <laughs> refers to Jesus phones as them, rather than um, uh, the other the other family. Now they just uh, iPhones just work, and they're great. So if Apple had a chip, I'd love it. But I also know from having an iPhone that there's always the long march to upgrade. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They would be slowing that chip down. (laughs) They would be messing with it. And I would have to get a new chip put in every five years. So I'd have it nice and easy where they can get it in and out of on my arm. Let's see it.
0: Fair enough. Um, Are you currently watching any interesting TV shows? Uh, We talked about The Pharmacist. But anything else you would like to share that you think would be...
1: What am I watching now? I'll tell you what I have been watching because basically I've watched all of television. Um, Over COVID, I've done television. I've done it all. (laughs) And um, I very much enjoyed recently watching a French TV show called uh, uh, Un Village Francais, which my bad French can translate into a French village, Mm -hmm. uh, which dealt with um, life under a typical French village during the German occupation going through each year from 1940 through to 19, well, actually, 1946, 47 of what happened. And it just goes to show that everybody, everybody ain't compromised, right? Nobody's hands were clean. It was tough. Even if you did good, you did bad. And it also, of course, comes into this thing about blockchain, because how did the Germans find a whole bunch of people? Well, the French got very good records you know, and they had very good paper records, and those paper records were down at the uh, the local administrative building and you could just go in and for instance figure out who was a Jew real quick, figure out who was a communist party member. All of these things could that would have been recorded by the um the republic could easily be taken over by Vinci, so I found that uh uh uh, you know a very interesting um sort of it got me thinking a lot about if you're in that position what are you going to do
0: yeah that brings up an interesting point that you know the blockchain in general is known to be an immutable ledger meaning that the data that enters is never going to leave although there are ways to amend it different blockchains have different like protocols um but the idea is you know if something's on there and at some point anyone might be able to access it yeah um so that is interesting What is a favorite book that has influenced you very much?
1: A favorite book? I would say... Well, uh, I'm sort of all over the map in terms of what I've been reading. So I have been... uh, I'm reading right now, and I'm finding it very, very interesting, um, David Edgerton's book, um, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason is that... Edgerton is one of those historians that you read and he bursts your bubble. You thought, oh, I thought that was true. Mm-hmm. And then you come along and he says, no, that isn't true. And I think one of the things that I get from reading that is how difficult it really is for governments and societies to achieve what they set out to achieve. That they, you know, you can really put everything behind something and it can just go to shit and there's nothing you can do about it. Um And I think he demonstrates quite well that a lot of, say, the myths of the story of declinism in Britain uh, isn't that, that, for instance, Britain got better off after it ended its empire um, rather than that. And he argues a British nation emerged from an empire just as an Indian nation emerged from an empire. Mm -hmm. And secondly, a lot of the things that people said Britain should have done, Britain did, but it's just really difficult to change things especially when you're investing you know you're trying to move a battleship around it takes a long time that you know that's influenced me i would say overall i mean the probably the book that influenced me more than anything um uh, over my whole life has been hannah rents the origin of totalitarianism which is you know allegedly a history of how totalitarianism got here but really it's about so much more it's about um how ideas uh, spread and take off and develop a life of their own. It's about how people resist uh, truth and why they do that. It's about how um, uh, ideas spread through communities and take on a life of their own. And I, mm-hmm. I would encourage anybody to read a rant uh, anytime. She has uh, uh, been a guide to light in my, for my whole life.
0: That is interesting. I'll include those books in my show notes too for the audience, so if they want to check okay. it out, they'll be able to do that. Um, have you ever read the the problem with political authority by Michael yes. Humor? So I, that yeah. was one that came to mind when you said uh, the yeah. the book you mentioned, the second one. I think yeah, I'll yeah. Check that out.
1: Yeah, and there's a great documentary about a rent you can look. Uh, I think it's called A Life of Ideas. Uh, very interesting person, uh, you know, German Jew. Um, sort of left uh, Germany with the Nazis just behind her. Eventually, ended up in Princeton, um, mm-hmm. and um, you know, this uh, had an affair with uh, Heidegger, who uh, later who was her professor and who later became a big time Nazi. Oh. <laughs> and so, just v- very interesting person. Very sounds interesting like an person. exciting,
0: yeah, read. <laughs> exciting
1: life. Yeah, although I think I could do with less excitement.
0: Yeah, um, so. Tori, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you. Talk soon.
0: Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.